All right. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about complexity. It, okay. Okay. So. It's, so, so do we have a drinking game for this? Like every time David uses the word complexing, we have to. <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 77 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. Who are you people, and why do you keep calling me? Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. David Brady. I'm going to complete this podcast until Josh loses his liver. Josh Susser. I really don't know how to follow that one. <laughs> and Just I'm, drink, man. Just drink. That's the rule. <laughs> okay. And like that, David Brady wins again. <laughs> That's a little frightening. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and uh, this week we have a special guest. That's Glenn Vanderberg. I have nothing snappy to say. That's okay. I'm sure you'll come up with something. We have a few announcements before we get going. We'll let Avdi start us off, and then James will take it away from there. Okay, book club. We are reading. This will come as a complete surprise to anybody who has been a uh, longtime listener, but uh, we are reading... Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby. No! Has anybody picked that? (laughs) (laughs) Has anybody not Uh, picked that? I think one of you have. By the great Sandy Metz. We're having her on the show January 2nd. Awesome. So um, So if you haven't already, pick up a copy of the book and read along with us, and and then we'll, we'll chat with her. Now, for the listeners, that means that episode will air on the 9th, right? Right, <laughs> unless we I'm, figure something out and start doing live episodes, but I don't know if oh. I really want to go there yet. So. Or, or, just, we can, or we can loop the episodes and have them air before we record them. Yes. <laughs> right. Josh has been watching Rupert, for those of you who missed the pre-show. <laughs> no, no, I'm about to watch it. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm actually cribbing from my, from my attendance at this show, looped back in time. Yep. <laughs> Right. So, James, you also have an announcement for us. Yes. It's time for Best of Parlay, the best stuff on our mailing list. I was gone for two weeks, so I'm cheating and I get two picks. The uh, first is Josh Susser's genius move. We invited all past speakers and we invite all future speakers who've been on the show. They have been invited. So, if you want one mailing list where you can get people like Steve Klobnik and Jim Weirich and Chad Fowler answering your questions. We now have that. Um, and we've seen exactly that on uh, the Parlay mailing list since they were added. So that is crazy awesome. The other cool pick was there was a, a great thread by Benjamin Fleischer, I think, just asking, hey, I'm going to RubyConf. It's kind of the first time I've done this. What do we do? And everybody chimed in with their conference going tips from what to bring to what to go see, what to miss, what not to miss, and uh, absolutely awesome, Maybe even for an experienced conference goer like myself. So lots of awesome things going on on the Cartlane mailing list, and uh, so check it out. I just want to second that and say it will surprise you what how many people said picked what thing not to take to the conference. That's right. Just leave it in your hotel room. It was awesome. One last announcement. Yes. And, and that's about the Ruby Newbie Project. Okay. Yes. So, so if you are listening to this episode on Halloween, which uh, I don't know how likely that is, but if you are, today's the last day to get your video in to enter the listener challenge and potentially get picked to be a guest on the show and come talk to us about what it's like to be new to Ruby. So uh, go check out the rubyrogues.com. There's a link in the sidebar about the contest and give us a couple minute video and then maybe come on the show. And thanks to our our supporters for uh, offering some incentives to participants. So rubymonk.com is offering a month of free 
a subscription to their service, and Railscast Pro is also doing that. And um, I believe we now have a 20% discount offer for the Pragmatic Studios uh, Ruby Online training as well. Okay, that's it. Yeah, yeah, enough stalling. Tell me about this Glenn Vanderberg guy. <laughs> I don't know, but whatever we're talking about, it sounds complicated. <laughs> I mean complex. Overly you complex. Mean both. Complected. So I, I guess as it's obvious by now, we're going to talk about Glenn's recent talk at uh, GoGaruko 2012, which was called Dealing with Complexity. Is that right, Glenn? Grasping complexity with both hands. Ah, yes. Grasping complexity with both hands. And Josh told me to go watch the, the thing, and I did yesterday. And, you know, when I saw the title, I thought, hmm, I wonder what this is going to be. And my my initial reaction was that you would show complicated programming scenarios and maybe mm-hmm. give advice on uh, how to get through them. And that was not at all what your talk was. So do you want to tell us what it was? Well, I've spent a whole lot of time both you know, in conference talks and sitting around tables in the office and everything else doing exactly what you just talked about. And, uh, but I've become aware, and, and I, I have a mania for simplicity in code, and, and um, I've found that nearly always, if you try hard enough, you can take complicated code and make it simple. But I began to notice that uh, there are some things in the world, not just in programming, problems that are genuinely complicated. And people have a natural sort of bias toward trying to think in simple terms and think in black and white and kind of recoil from real sort of dizzying complexity, and uh, which is okay, but if we uh, don't face up to real complexity in situations that we deal with, we end up making stupid decisions. And so the talk is about how to recognize genuinely complex problems and situations and think clearly about them and try to make smart decisions instead of uh, pretending that a complex situation is really simple. Nice. So, so do the simplest thing that could possibly work does not mean you can just do the simplest thing you can think of and then skip that last half of that? Sure, right. And, and you know, we, we all know that, but uh, sometimes in the thick of things we forget. No, I, I, I like that a lot. The current project I'm working on, the company has decided to, uh, my current client, they have decided to take on HIPAA compliance and PCI compliance at the same time. It's medical billing. And nice. the, the simplest thing that could possibly work is heinously, insanely complicated. <laughs> yep, that happens. I like how throughout your talk, I mean, like I said, it, I, you know, I, I was originally thinking it would be about, uh, you know, different code scenarios or something. But actually, it didn't even turn out to be about programming as much as it was Not about really people and communication and the silly things our brains do to us. Mm-hmm. Which which really, you know, shouldn't be surprising. It was a surprise to me, too, as I, I wrote the talk and everything, but it shouldn't be surprising because um, that's when ten, things tend to get complicated is when people get involved. Yeah, those darn people. I know it. <laughs> Glenn, have you read Peopleware? The- oh, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. That, that is one of my very favorites. I, I love the fact the the original book was like 1978 or 1980 mm-hmm. something, and they yeah, revised. Where I was working at the time, uh, I was working at the time. <laughs> um, where I was working at the time, uh, that was passed around as subversive literature. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, this is a book about everything they're they're doing wrong around this place. Yeah, yeah. So they they revised a newly updated because it was written before the internet. And they revised it and released a second edition in 2000. Right. And the preface to the preface to the preface, so the preface to the second edition, says, "We went back and read the 1980 manuscript, and we have decided to fix a couple of typos and add a chapter on email." And that was it. The, the, yeah. All of the problems that we described in 1980 are still alive and well. That they they have nothing to do. You can't solve. A people problem with more technology and the internet has absolutely no effect on that truism. Right. Now we can just distribute our dysfunction. Yep. 
It's sca- well, dysfunction is now scalable. Yeah. It's web scale. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Okay, so, so Glenn, uh, back to the topic. The uh, <laughs> the I thought your talk was was very interesting, and I I tend to. Um, you know, when I think about the com- the complexity involved in in a system, mm-hmm. I, I, I look at it a, from sort of a a thermodynamics perspective. That you know, complexity okay. complexity isn't um, I, I don't know. It's, it, it, it it seems like if you draw the circle around you know around the stuff in your system in the mm-hmm. right place, and and you have a good grasp of. You know, what are all yeah. the what's what's the whole functionality of the system? You know, maybe including the users and whatever right. other other things are part of it. That past a certain point, you can't really reduce the complexity of a system. No, and, that's right. And, and, you know, th- there's just some things that are innately complicated, and and th- you know, this is what you were you were talking about, and then you you did this whole riff on oversimplification. So that so the thing that the way that I like to look at it is that. There's like the second law of, of thermodynamics for complexity where you, know, you can't remove the complexity from a system. The most you can hope for is arranging things so that most of the complex things are convenient to ignore. Right. You know, Fred Brooks talked about this many years ago in um, – oh, I've even forgotten the name of that paper now. Uh, Mythical but, Man Month? Yeah. No, no, no. That was, that was the that book. Was different. Um, okay. But there was a, a paper – the subtitle was Essence and Accident in Software Design. Uh-huh. And um, he developed this concept that in every system there is essential complexity and accidental complexity. And th- those he chose those terms from Aristotle. Uh, I tend to think of it more as incidental rather than accidental complexity. The essential complexity is just inherent to the problem you're trying to solve and the system you're trying to build. It the you can't reduce it beyond that point. Uh, yeah, no silver bullet. Thank you. Uh, that's the name of the paper. And, oh right, um, I've read that. Yeah. yeah. So the incidental complexity or accidental complexity is kind of all the other stuff that if you knew how or had tools that were really well suited to the problem, you could get rid of that. And in typical software systems, the accidental complexity turns out to be well. A lot of it's just extra stuff because you don't understand things well. But a lot of it, too, is taking your general purpose programming environment and building it up to be the special purpose programming environment that you need to solve that problem, right? So, um, yeah, that's a pretty old concept of, of uh, it's important to try to understand what complexity is essential and inherent to the problem that you're trying to solve and get all the other stuff and and compartmentalize it and keep it out of the way. You know, I read an awesome article uh, just like yesterday or the day before. Uh, I think it was called Learnable Programming. Uh, oh, yeah. Brett Victor's thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy who did Inventing on Principle, right? Mm-hmm. That famous video that everybody loves. And I, I was just struck by what you were just saying and how much that is tied into. He's, he's trying to figure out, obviously, trying to solve a really hard problem of, you know, how can we make our editors take them to the next level, you know, or our tools, basically. And um, how can we make it where, you know, you can start with some simple idea, but then, you know, just through simple steps with the editor or interactions with the mouse or whatever, you know, it it abstracts it out to a point where it's useful to you, you know, and that was was very interesting. I don't necessarily agree with all the directions he's going with that, but it's amazing work. And, um, you know, I, I have to admire him. He's, he's really, you know, doing the hard work on things that a lot of us have just been kind of thinking about for a long time. And one thing I've noticed is the best programmers I know all have some good techniques in their mind for visualizing or conceptualizing or modeling the programs they work with. And it tends to be sort of a spatial visual model in your head, but not always. And, you know, what's going on is our brains are geared towards the physical world and dealing with our senses and integrating that sensual, sensory input and uh, sometimes sensual input, I guess, and dealing with that. But the work we do as programmers is all abstract. And it makes perfect sense that you would want to find techniques to rope the physical sensory parts of your brain 
into this task of dealing with abstractions. But we don't ever teach anybody how to do that or even that they should do that. And we do a really poor job of building programming tools to help with that. So, you know, the good programmers are the ones who kind of somehow managed to figure this out on their own uh, with no help. And uh, uh, Britt Victor is, it seems to me, trying to, to figure out ways to make the tools really work well with the majority of our brains. Yeah, that's a great point. It seems like almost in learning programming, you you hit this point where you're basically thrown to the wolves and you have to, uh, you know, just go off and suffer for a while. And then some people's head, it clicks, and then others, it doesn't, and they just go away, you know. And then and then the, the ones who, who make it past that horrible stage, they come back and then we're, we're able to teach them more advanced stuff. But I think you're right. I don't think we don't do a good job of teaching how, you know, how we fight the layers of abstraction and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, so, you know, the talk actually, uh, the talk I gave at Gogoruko sort of came out of the talk I gave last year at Lone Star RubyConf. I don't know if you remember, James, but you, you opened that conference with a, a keynote about how we need more science in our field. And then I sheepishly stood up for the next talk and said, my talk's about how we can't really do good science in our field. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember. And uh, so, you know, and and I certainly agree with everything you were saying, but, you know, in a a broader scope beyond uh, the code, it's just too costly or impractical or in some cases even impossible to do, you know, what we would consider genuine scientific experiments uh, uh, with rigor on software development and the way teams work and uh, and things like that. So, you know, the talk, that talk was all about various kinds of evidence that are weaker than scientific evidence and how you make smart decisions if that's all you got, right? So when I started planning for, for Gogaruko, I sort of zeroed in on one part of that is, is just ways of, ways of dealing with complex situations and thinking about them clearly and... Uh, that turned out to be a fairly rich vein all by itself. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think if you look at just, you know, most of the modern interests, let's say even just in our community, I mean, you've got things like SOA getting a lot of attention, which is about dealing with complexity as your application size grows, right? Object mm-hmm. orientation has made a huge comeback in our community, and that's about dealing with complexity, you know, it's it's... On almost every level, that seems to be what we're interested in. Right. I should, for for listeners, I should make a point of saying something that I said in the talk, which is this is not absolutely not a topic where I'm an expert. I chose to kind of give this talk and and spend some time thinking about it because I realized it was important and I needed to learn about it. But um, I'm absolutely not an expert on it. You made an interesting distinction in the talk between bounded complexity, which which engineers actually tend to like, um, mm-hmm. even if they don't always admit it, and unbounded complexity. Right. And I, I made this snide joke about if we didn't actually like some kinds of complexity, we wouldn't have languages like Scala. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, or Ruby for that matter, but it's much less snarky to say that. You know, I think it comes down to I don't know if bounded is really the right word, but it's do we have this intuition that it's within our grasp, right? Do, do you feel like if you rolled up your sleeves, you can conquer this? And uh, engineers in general, I think, really find those kinds of puzzles really attractive and want to dive in and, and uh, deal with things. Um, in the talk, I gave this example of uh, a couple of engineers at Living Social, where I work, said, hey, let's have a crappy code contest and see who can write the worst implementation of this and you know a whole bunch of people dove in and came up with some just breathtakingly horrible complex solutions mm-hmm. and loads of fun but <laughs> you put yours up on a slide and i loved it it was great <laughs> I, I loved your comment of what did you say it's disturbing how proud i am of this code <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a uh, yaml parser that's basically built around two giant gnarly regular expressions and uh, um, and stabby lambdas yeah. <laughs> sort of 
I, I have to admit the stabby lambdas were, were sort of uh, gratuitous. It was okay. Um, <laughs> it's actually not as ugly and horrible with just the regular expressions as I was hoping. So I have to find. Out. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the geeks' version of the uh, fake Hemingway contest. You're right. Right. Also, I did a a FizzBuzz contest years ago, and somebody submitted a working solution that was re- all regular expressions. Oh wow! Te- terrifying. That's oh, awesome. Oh man! Did y'all see uh, Jim Wyrick's version of that? That was all pure lambda calculus. Yeah, that was awesome. Ooh. Yeah, I mean in Ruby, but uh, yeah, he limited himself so much. Wow. Yeah, that was awesome. Okay. Isn't, isn't that kind of the idea behind the code retreats? Is that you? You solve a problem, and you not not that you're writing horrible code, but that you put constraints upon your code. Exactly. Yeah, you're you're trying to write the best code you can, but you put constraints on your yourself or your pair to kind of see. Okay, if I can't do that, what what other techniques do I have to discover or invent or whatever in order to keep this code reasonable? Brian, you had a cool thing in your talk that was a aha moment for me, where. I, uh, you talked about how, as programmers, we're always searching for that one simple solution that satisfies all the edge cases. And, of course, we're generally always disappointed, right? Because it almost never exists. It, I knew that intuitively, but it wasn't until you said it, you know, that's like, yeah, that's what we're after. <laughs> if you can find a way, and so I, I think some of the move to try to program without if statements, you know, is driven by that, um, and every now and then you can you can craft a solution to a problem that seemed to have a lot of special cases, and it turns out that there's a way of solving it where the special cases just fall out naturally from the logic. And and sometimes it happens without you realizing it, and you write the test for one of the special cases, and it passes right away. Right. Now, Glenn, you were talking about bounded versus unbounded complexity just a moment ago. That w- one of the things that I find really fascinating is that the, the human brain is not wired for being able to deal with large numbers. No. It, it, you know, it's like you know, we can handle a few numbers, you know, like 7 or 10 or something like that. But you know, when you get up to a trillion or, yeah. or something like that, we just have no concept of how these things work. And and I think that a lot of the surprise reaction that we get to encountering coincidences is because we don't really understand all of the large numbers in play. I mean, you know, for instance, if I'm walking down the street and I run into my college roommate or or like, you know, a, an old buddy from college, I'll be like, "Oh my god, you know, you know, you know, that was just amazing. I haven't seen him in years. We just ran into each other." And someone will say, "Wow, what are the odds of that happening?" And my response is always, "Well, apparently pretty good because yeah. it happened." <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, and, when people say it's a small world, they're talking about <laughs> people who've lived in the same city for years and years. <laughs> well, but, but if you think about all the people that I've met in my life or all the people I went to college with even, you know, that's maybe, you know, a, a couple thousand people in, in just in that pool. And how many of them I'm like, I might run into, you sure. know, and any day in my whole life, and then you run the numbers on that, you say, oh, well, I just happened to run into somebody someday. It's actually not very un- unpredictable, or it's not very unbelievable from a statistical point of view that that would eventually happen. Right. The birthday paradox is an example of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Uh, for people who don't know what it is, tell us, Glenn. Uh, well, so, you know, I, I forget exactly what the threshold is, but you have a room full of, say, 20 people, and... You say, you know, uh, you make a bet with somebody. I bet uh, two people in this room have the same birthday. And, uh, you know, generally in, in a room of 20 people, it's easy to get somebody to take that bet, right? It's like, no way. What are the odds of that? Well, it turns out, if you do the math, that the odds of a random group of 20 people, two of them will have the same birthday, is pretty close to 100%. And it just is totally unintuitive for the way most people think about those odds. Well, it's unintuitive to me. Hmm. <laughs> it's, com- yeah. it's, com- it's combinatorics, and our brains don't really have, have the, yeah. any hardware okay. support for doing that. And now, all you have to do to, to change it wildly is say, you know, pick one person in this room, and what are the odds that 
another person will have the same birthday as that person. Right. That gets really hard. Yeah, that's really astronomical. But uh, if you can just pick any two of the 20 people in this room that have the same birthday, uh, a pretty good bet that someone w- that one pair will have the same birthday. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so just to give a, a, a correct percent, if you have 23 people, that's a 50% chance oh, to share the birthday. Yeah, it's it's very surprising. It, it turns out, and it, it's so confusing. People understand this so badly. There's a episode of uh, I think it was uh, the Tonight Show where somebody comes on and they try to explain this to Johnny Carson, and he didn't buy it, of course. And then uh, the guy did such a bad job of explaining it and saying what it was. That Johnny's like, uh uh-uh, you know, we've got that many people in the audience, I'll prove it to you. And then he asks the audience the wrong question, (laughs) uh, which turns out to mean that it fails, you know. And and so, yeah, it's it's very difficult to understand. But it's like Josh said, it's combinatronics, and and we're just, we're not good at that intuitively. Well, the other thing is, I just looked it up, and it, you know, it's explaining that it's the number of possible pairs as opposed to the number of individuals. And, And the interesting thing is, is that, it, it it harkens back to another part of Glenn's talk where he talked about asking the wrong question. Mm-hmm. So instead of asking, you know, how many you know how many days in the year are there, and how many people are in the room, you know that that's not exactly the right question, or at least it's not the complete right question. And that's so, it. This this problem, uh, yeah, goes even farther than that because I know Glenn also talked about. Can we, can we do this thing that would get us most of the way there, that would be mostly right, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the interesting thing with the birthday problem. If you need a room full of people that ha- that, where two of them have the same birthday and you have to guarantee it, then you need 366 people to cover every day of the year, right? And plus one. That's how many you need. But if you're willing to accept a 50% chance, that right. number drops to 23, right? So mm-hmm. massive difference. Yeah, there's there's a lot of cases where people are asking the wrong question or looking for the wrong kinds of solution. That's why in the talk I talked about how we like complete solutions, right? And we're trained for this from when we start programming. Uh, if if we learn to program in school, you know, you turn in a program and you'll get marks counted off if uh, uh, it doesn't cover all the edge cases, right? Mm-hmm. But in real life, often you can get by without covering the edge cases. Uh, almost every sizable business has automated processes that just simply punt on some hard cases and send an email to somebody or stick something in a task queue or something for a human to deal with. And, you know, if, uh, if those edge cases are rare enough, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do because it would take a whole lot of work to automate it. The automation would probably be very brittle and you'd probably still only cover like 10 to 20% of the remaining weird cases that could happen. So, you know, once we get it down to where there's just a couple of these things a week, let's just let a human being take care of them. Well, I think it's an interesting thing, too, because ultimately what we're talking about here is providing some kind of value to our customer or our boss or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so by solving these edge cases, I mean, if we spend eight hours or 16 hours and let's say our time's worth, I don't know, 50 bucks an hour, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's probably high for some and low for others. But um, let's just say 50 bucks an hour, it costs them 50 bucks an hour to make you work, which is, I think, really low, actually, now that I think about it. But you know, so we're talking four hundred to eight hundred dollars, where you could pay some minimum wage guy to handle it every once in a great while. So the ROI isn't there either. Sure. Um, I was just thinking about how uh, you know just now, Glenn, you talked about uh, you know get an email when something goes wrong or uh, things like that. You you also talked about that in your talk quite a bit, uh, where you said you know don't don't try to make things not go wrong. You can't make things not go wrong, you know. Right. Just make it where you find out when things go wrong and you can do something about it, you know, or or try to try to make it transparent and and right. Know. Yeah. It, this is kind of the and and again most of the examples of this I think turn turn up in people processes rather than in programs, but this is one of the things that distinguishes 
agile work from you know older school styles of so- developing software it, the the command and control kind of process only uh, goes so far uh, if you try to prevent bad things happening or always steer things in the right direction you're going to miss opportunities to do clever things that that might initially seem like a bad idea and um uh, and you're still going to have problems and be ill-equipped to deal with them. Um, instead of control, uh, look for ways to make it easy for people to make progress, but also get feedback quickly when things go wrong. There's a really good point. I worked on a system one time that had a database that didn't have uh, locking, for, for example. So you couldn't do something like a uniqueness check, right? You didn't have a transaction. And you couldn't do... Uh, you know, only add this email address for this guy if, uh, if you know, it's not already in the database. And um, it turned out, you know, it sounds like a massive problem. And we're taught that you have to have that, you know. And, and the truth is that, like, it really wasn't as crippling as you might think. Like, it, we looked at the problem, you know, really hard. And it was like, okay, there's, like, three areas where this actually matters, <laughs> you know. Right. And most of them can be solved with this simple little trick, you know, or, or something so that we're, we're reasonably sure. And there was actually one uh, which was actually new user sign-up, I think, where, you know, but if everybody's using their real email address, there shouldn't be any duplicates anyway. You right. know? Um, but it w- there wasn't a way for us to technologically ensure that, you know, without accidentally creating the user. And uh, we solved it with a really stupid, simple process where... Um, Anytime uh, we had to fetch a user from the database, instead of uh, fetching just the first one that matched, we asked for the first two that matched. So that if there a duplicate had been created, oh, yeah. we'd get more than one. And then at that point, uh, if that ever happened, we just you know lock those accounts and say, "Whoops, something went wrong here." And like Glenn said, we sent an email to the admins. You know, and to my knowledge, that that was never triggered. You know, it was never. It never even came up. But the point is, you know, we could have exhausted such a ridiculous amount of effort trying to get transactions there because we just knew we had to have them, you know. But it turns out we didn't really need them as much as we thought. Yeah, it, it tells you how big how big of a problem it is by getting those emails. The other point I was going to drive at was more along the lines of development process. A lot of times we kind of get paralyzed by the fact that we don't know how to solve the entire problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't get this whole problem into my head, or I, I kind of get the the whole problem into my head, but I can't get a whole solution into my head. And I've been in situations there where um, you build the incomplete solution, and by the time you're done building what you could formulate uh-huh. in your head, then you understand the problem well enough to move ahead and finish it. And sometimes you can finish it by integrating that into your you know, solution you're building, and sometimes you have to build like a two-part solution to recognize when the simple way or fast way or whatever can't deal with this particular case and punt to a, a different way of dealing with it. Right. Plus, just doing that bit that you can do, you've already reduced the complexity so much, you make yeah. it easier on yourself, you yeah. know. Though it does happen sometimes that you load the guns into the car and then you fall over on your back and, and break your arm while getting them out of the car. I mean, that does happen. That would never happen. <laughs> what are the, but what are the odds, honestly, of that having happened to, like, say, somebody on this podcast? Yeah, exactly. What are the odds? Astronomical. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> the probability is 1.0. Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is building the... the imp- the incomplete solution isn't always a guarantee that you're going to be able to finish the, the solution. Sure. Mm-hmm. But like we've been saying before, it's, it may be, it may be good enough. Yep. So. Exactly. Start yeah. on what you know. That was the, that was the great thing about all your talk, you know, as was everything was real, you know, down to earth, you know, you're going to run into these complex situations. You're going to run into these problems, you know, Mm-hmm. You know, try to see the other side. Try to simplify as much as you can. Try to ignore the parts you can't. You know, it's right. It was very practical. Okay. Now, now one of the one of the canonically difficult problems with complexity is talking about it. That's true. And and you know how you communicate 
about something oh. that's that's really complex. Yeah. And you know, you know, you're sitting there programming, and you run into this ridiculously complicated thing about the the the, the product feature that your your mm-hmm. product product manager has given you. You know, they you know they wrote up a story, and you start working on the on this. You know, you estimated it as a three point story, and you run into it, and you're like, oh, oh my God, this is like a twenty five point story. What am I going to? And uh, but the. You don't share enough common language in, in the technical jargon, right? To, to be able to talk about the complexity and and explain things well enough so that they can really understand what's going on and and then you know figure out some better course of action. In general, programmers are really well equipped for that because we have a language that we share that lets you be really specific about things. And but you know then when you're talking to people who aren't programmers, it can be very difficult. It's hard for me sometimes though because like even faced with a complicated problem, I, I sometimes feel sorry for the person I have to answer to because when I'm sure. in the middle of it, I know that I have it, but I probably can't explain it well enough that they know that I have it. <laughs> you know, it's like mm-hmm. yeah, I've got it, and I'm not really sure what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure it's going to work. I'll tell you when I'm done. You know? <laughs> Yes. Okay, but um, okay. but other than that, it just in in general, when you're when you're talking about complex things, is mm-hmm. you know what is there some psychology of it or some I don't know something about it that makes it easier to to communicate about? Well, uh, not that I know of. Uh, okay, there's, there's is there is there a magic bullet for it? I mean, <laughs> some psychology of why it's so hard, and I was going to say yes, absolutely. You know, one thing is that the people you're talking about have such a short talking about talking to, um, being people have such a short memory, right? And so you're you start talking about well, case X and case Y and case Z, and if you mention a case that they have some opinion about, they immediately, and I say they, I mean we, you know, it's just a natural thing that people do. If you mention a case that they have some knowledge of or opinion about or suggestions for, they immediately zero in on that and forget all the others. And uh, it's it's hard. You, Josh, you mentioned people have problems with large numbers. Um, when it comes to keeping multiple thoughts in your head at the same time, people have problems with very small numbers. Right. right. That's I, awesome. I, I think right. it's you funny. Mean, that, you mean it's easier to keep big numbers in your head? <laughs> well, yeah, because in aggregate you don't have to think about each one. Oh, okay. What I what I love is that is that Glenn Vanderberg just called all of our listeners stupid. Oh, and <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're and listening he's, to the show. <laughs> and he's right. That's that's uh, it's it's not this. It's one of those things where we think we're really good at something, but in reality, as human beings, we're really bad at it, and we have an epic blind spot on it as well. For a sure. second there, that felt like you were saying, "Look, Glenn, look down these stairs." <laughs> <laughs> but if you read books like uh, Pragmatic Thinking and Learning, they talk about that a lot about how as and, you uh, get up on the expert scale, you're actually much more humble, right? Because you've developed all these uh, defense mechanisms, <laughs> you know, about everything you know you can't trust yourself on, you know, or you can't know, you know. And, and so you have these checks and balances and you use your instincts, of course, that you've gained along the way to guide you in roughly the right direction. But uh, at the same time, you better be double checking because you also know your instincts are very, you know, fallible. You know, this is this is why people make checklists and uh, right have GTD programs and all those things because uh, we've learned how fallible and stupid we are. Right, unit tests. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or higher assistance. The yep. best description of GTD that I ever heard was, it, you know, GTD is a Trojan horse that you invite into your life, and then it, and then basically you become an agent for GTD <laughs> running your life. Yes, that is awesome. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that is a great description. So somebody mentioned unit testing. That's one of my favorite examples of sort of a a, a complex. Thing that people have trouble grasping, um, and and one of the patterns, uh, I hate using the word patterns here, but uh, one of the the common patterns of people not dealing with complexity adequately is focusing on 
obvious benefits or costs and forgetting about second order things. Yeah. And um, I've spent a lot of time over the years teaching unit testing and TDD. And I've noticed this happen all the time. Unit testing has some costs, especially at times, and it also has benefits. And the interesting thing is that it has multiple different benefits that help you in different ways. Mm-hmm. And people who are just learning about it have real trouble holding all or even more than one of those benefits in their mind at the same time. They, they focus in on the one they understand or the one that means the most to them or answers their current problem or whatever. But then they, they reach the point of saying, well, if that's all it is, it's not worth the cost, it doesn't right. seem. And, and I kind of agree with them. Uh, but the, it's when you add all the different benefits up together uh, that it becomes a slam dunk. And it's kind of hard for, for a lot of people when they're first learning about it to understand all that. Yeah, the- I, uh, I had a great chat with uh, Corey Haynes at Aloha RubyConf, and we discussed exactly this. He said that he had written a system recently with no unit tests because he wanted to see if it was still worth it. Like, you know, is, is it still valuable to him? And he said, and for the most part, he, he wrote the app and he says, if you look at it, for the most part, you would think I probably TDD'd it. And that's just because <laughs> his instincts are pretty good at this point. You know, he's done it long enough and he, he, he got in the neighborhood. But he, he also admitted that there's some parts you can look at and think, oh, that would have been a lot better if I had actually TDD'd it. Yeah. And that's the slam dunk, is that you unit test and suddenly you change the way you write code. You write stuff that's more testable and it's more modular. And when you're still just learning how to unit test stuff, you don't see that. You have a blind spot there. You you cannot be made to see that. It's not until you you screw up and you write some code without putting tests behind it and then you go back to write a unit test and you find out you can't test it because you have complicated your code. Take a drink, Josh. Um, because you, it's a, yeah. So that, I mean, you've you've mixed everything up, and now you can't test it, and you don't see that. Or the flip side is, is you you go back through working on a project later on, and you're dreading something, and then you go in and realize that you TDD'd it, and it either saves you because the test doesn't pass, or you realize, hey, that wasn't so bad because I had to write the the code in a different way. Yeah. I'm actually facing uh, with with multiple clients recently this resistance to unit testing, and um, there's just this this innate need to think about code and to logic your way to the facts. And we we talked earlier in the show about how computer science needs more science, and I I'm going to nitpick and say that computer science is heaving with science, but it's heaving with formal science as opposed to empirical science. Yeah. And, and formal science is a, is a science in which you set up a set of, of a priori rules and then you just logic your way through it and, well, of course it's wor- it works. I've thought about it and I'm sure it works just fine. But empirical science is where you actually design an experiment to find out if it does, in fact, work. And... If there's a unit test, that's an automatic empirical science test mm-hmm. that will let you give this huge formally logic, you know, formal logic pile of nested mangled garbage, right? This this huge pile of code to someone else who doesn't know the code, who needs to sit down at one end and maybe think all the way through it, or they could just run the unit tests and bam, they've got empirical evidence that says the code works. Now they can go look through it. And understand how it works, right. because they've figured out first that it does in fact work. Yeah, was it Knuth who uh, said, uh, "You know, I'm, I'm yes. sorry, I, I, I've only, I haven't tested this program to see if it works. I've merely proven it correct." Yes, right. so be careful. Be, beware of bugs in the following code. I have merely, I have merely proved it correct. I have not tested it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So uh, yeah, that was that was kind of the compromise I think Glenn and I came to when we both gave those sciencey talks at Lone Star was that um, it really depends on you know how you're looking at science, and mm-hmm. I was going for 
the very, uh, you know, straight up definition, you know, that anyone can do. We don't need teams. We don't need, you know, massive budgets or whatever. It was, you know, we, we build a hypothesis and then uh, try to prove it wrong. Right. Well, you you know, one of the things I said in that talk last year uh, was we, we throw around this word prove and proof and, uh, you know, our, our training in science and, and math makes us think we know what that means. But um, if you want some fun, put a physicist and a mathematician and a historian and a lawyer in a room together and tell them to agree on what the meaning of prove is. <laughs> <laughs> and because, you know, yeah, well, law is arguably outside that altogether, but <laughs> you, you have different qualities of evidence and, and you can't go back in time and repeat things. And um, uh, the standard of proof that works in some situations is not going to work in other situations. And, and in software, we're, we're trying to prove something to, to where we have the confidence to act, right? And right. Uh, sometimes a much lower standard of proof is perfectly adequate for that. And sometimes it has to be because going beyond that uh, would just be way too costly. To me, though, I think that's why science makes such a good example because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even things that, that, that we quote-unquote know, you yeah. know, like the theory of gravity. Right. You know, yep. it, because we, we have enough evidence. We've tried our best to disprove it. Mm-hmm. And at this point... That's how we can explain it that seems to fit the rules. You know, we have or, proven that that's the uh, closest approximation to the truth that we've come up with yet. Exactly. It's like, you know, Newton got close on mm-hmm. relativity, you know, and, and for some scales, he was effectively right. You yeah. know? But, but it wasn't until Einstein came along and did some tweaks that it got even better, you know. Yeah. You know, this reminds me, and, and this is kind of taking things in an odd direction but the uh you know um it took a while after newton's uh discoveries for the world at large to really come to grips with those laws right so and i'm using as the standard here sort of average high school educated guy you know who paid attention in class kind of understands the way the world works according to those laws and um that had some uh, a as those ideas spread throughout society, uh, that had a big impact on things, right? Right. Well, then the 20th century comes along, and Einstein upends a lot of that. And it took a long time for people to sort of have an intuitive understanding of relativity. But, you know, eventually, and, and even when I was a kid, the average student who was interested in science and paid attention in class got that. And it came partly through school and partly through reading science fiction novels that feature it and everything. But you kind of have an intuitive grasp for how relativity affects you in different certain situations, you know, hypothetically. Well, there are other scientific revolutions that I think haven't penetrated into society that thoroughly yet. And one of them is quantum mechanics. And, uh, but one of them that I'm really interested in is the idea of chaos and emergent phenomena and things like that. And um, I think that it will have a big impact on society as lay people, if you want to use that term, come to really be comfortable with that concept of small, simple rules having large and apparently very complex effects at different scales. And we, we talked earlier about um, how agile processes are basically, they substitute facilitation and feedback for control. And that's an example of that. It's kind of an emergent process where you give people goals and put a few lightweight, simple, localized rules in place uh, that uh, govern how they act in different situations. And um, you watch that achieve, in most cases, better results than you could if you planned it out and controlled every aspect of the process. And TDD is a very similar kind of thing. Um, it One of the reasons that, that people find it hard to grasp is that um, 
the idea of an emergent process like that where you don't think about this large complex artifact you're trying to build at a large scale very much, but you focus on the details and let it let the design grow seems like it couldn't possibly work. Yeah, that, that, in one sense, what you're talking about is the evolutionary process. Yeah, you know, some 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 form of you know, you know mm-hmm. mutate mutation, change, and selection. That are, have you ever read anything about the work of Thomas Ray and the genetic algorithm stuff that he did with his Darwin system? Yes, it, it, it was it was just fascinating. For it's worth looking up for listeners. Maybe I'll I'll put a link in if I can dig one up. But the but basically he wrote this little virtual machine that had about the same order of complexity for the instruction set of the programs as the um, human genetic code. Mm-hmm. And, you know, meaning there were about the same number of instructions as there are groups of codons that you find in, in DNA. And wrote like the simplest possible program you could write that would copy itself and, and, and turn the system loose with a little bit of mutation al- allowed and some natural selection uh, pressures on the system. And like immediately, like within, within, you know, I don't know how many thousands of generations, but in, in human time, it was immediately, uh, they had all sorts of mutated creatures. Right. Uh, and the thing that always developed was parasitism. Oh, wow. And, yeah, it was just so it was just wow. you know amazing how all this stuff works. And then there were like uh, organisms that developed defenses against particular kinds of parasitism, and then the parasites would evolve to do something else. So it's just fascinating stuff, and it really speaks to you know what you're talking about. With you can set up some simple mechanisms for providing feedback into your process, and that can it, and that can move uh, what you're building in. You know, unexpected directions, but it can also take you a lot farther than having to sit down and and prognosticate what are all the things that you might right. do down the road. That and is lot, awesome, of, Josh. You need to put that in the show notes. Okay. Well, a lot of times uh, when you're faced with a, a situation that seems just for forbiddingly complex, part of what's happening is that we are trying to think of a, a sort of command and control style solution to that problem where we sort of analyze it and you know, one by one deal with everything that can happen. And one technique is to try, to try to look for a more emergent style solution where you do simple things and you pick the right right uh, combination of simple things that together produce a, an effective, if not perfect, solution to this problem without you ever having to understand all of the details of what a solution looks like. And just to kind of redirect a tiny bit before we leave this, you know, to me, I've looked at genetic algorithms quite a bit in the past and played with them, and and you can almost always get to a solution that way, and it's almost always great. But it's that the amount of effort and energy it takes to push that all the way through, or you can crack open any algorithm book, and if you turn to the right kind of problem, you can probably get the heuristic mm-hmm. solution that gets you 80 to 90% of the way there, you know, with, right. with almost no effort. You know, it's very strange. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. David, why don't you start us off? Okay. Uh, two really quick. Um, we mentioned Peopleware uh, earlier. Uh, in the call. I don't think that's actually ever been picked, so I'm going to pick it now. It's called Peopleware Productive Projects and Teams uh, by uh, Tom DeMarco and Timothy Lister. There's some software from the 90s called Peopleware. This is not that. Uh, This is just a book about all the things that organizations do wrong to make in order to try and control people's productivity that ends up screwing up their productivity. If you if this statement resonates with you, you need this book. Do you have a manager who thinks that you are lazy and need to be driven to do work? And yet, do you sneak off to a conference room and hide in a dark <laughs> office so that you can get work done? Those two statements <laughs> do not jive. You are not lazy if you have to go hide from your work in order to get work done. If that resonates with you, you need to read Peopleware. Um, adding technology to a people problem makes it worse. That's that's a, it's just a fantastic, fantastic book. My second pick is The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business by Charles Duhigg. This book is 
I'm just going to flat out flat out say that this book is in my top five all-time books I've ever read. If you want to know why you do habits the way you do, if you want to know why marketers are are totally controlling your life, if you want to know why Target can tell if uh, you are pregnant before even you have told anyone and so they can start mailing you coupons for baby products and why they do that and why that's really freaking evil. This book is absolutely incredible. The reason I recommend it is because he breaks down what the elements of a habit are. A habit is some cue that triggers a routine that you will go do that then gets you a reward and all three of those things are wrapped around a craving for something and if you have those four elements cue routine reward wrapped around a craving you will form a habit every single time and it controls over f- about 40% of what you do d- during the day is a habit and not a conscious decision you don't when you go to the bathroom it's it wouldn't be a david brady if i didn't work uh, a potty story into it but when you go to the bathroom you don't think about taking your pants off there's, that's not a conscious decision. You have habitualized this. This book is absolutely incredible. If you want to figure out how to make your bed in the morning or brush your teeth more often or exercise or quit smoking or any of those things, this book breaks down the math of how to tear apart the chunks of your internalized habits, replace the pieces that you want, and move forward. It's absolutely incredible. And so if I had a habit of like really long picks, what would I do? <laughs> um, basically, you you would you would talk about you'd really have to delve into that craving to hear yourself speak, the, and being in love with the sound of your voice, and uh, and then you know consider the reward that you get of getting to hear yourself talk and talk and talk and talk. Um, yeah. So, yeah, very 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 cool. That's All right, Abdi, what are your picks? I think I just have one. This has kind of been all over the place on Twitter and, and, and other places, so a lot of the listeners have probably read this already. But uh, on the Code Climate blog, there is uh, an article on seven patterns to refactor fat active record models, and it's really good. It, it's just a, a, by one of my coworkers, and it's awesome. We're yes. going to have an episode on that. Uh, it's just we're kind of booked up right now, so it's a little ways out, but we're going to do it. Great. Yep. Yeah, good stuff. Lots of good advice there. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Okay. Um, James, what are your picks? Two tech picks. The first is um, there's a podcast by the Thoughtbot guys who does giant robots smashing into other yeah, giant Thoughtbot. robots. Yeah, it's Thoughtbot. Anyways, they have a podcast called That Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots. And um, I don't even know which episode this is of it. It's kind of hard to find their podcast and find like individual pages for it, but. There was an episode with Chris Wanstroth on and somebody else, I think. Anyways, uh, it's a really neat episode. They go through and talk about a lot of interesting things like um, does tell, don't ask uh, conflict with the MVC design pattern, uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, They talk about class-oriented design. They talk about uh, cool things we can get from small talk like... um, categories actually which uh, you know maybe doesn't get discussed uh, a lot so anyways just kind of an obscure podcast that um, I, I enjoyed listening to I found this episode of somebody's recommendation and a lot of cool tidbits in it so check that out then Avdi's new series the, uh, Ruby Tapas uh, where he's doing these Ruby videos all the time they are crazy great the thing you have to know about this is that uh, the length is perfect. They're usually like two minutes, sometimes less, very occasionally a little more, but they're just awesome short. Like I literally got my headphones on and was ready for this call and I was like, oh, I've got a couple of minutes. Okay, I'll watch today's Ruby Topics episode. And because they're basically free time-wise, you, you never feel bad about just watching one. So uh, that's awesome. They're excellent. It's Rails cast for Ruby. Awesome. Go check that out. And finally, since we discussed all kinds of awesome science today, this is one of my favorite science videos. It's in HD on YouTube, and uh, it's totally worth it to just blow it up full screen and watch. But um, it's a Slinky video. They, they stretch Slinkies out and then let them go. 
and uh, and you see in full HD what happens. They filmed it in really slow motion, and you see what happens to a slinky when you like stretch it out and let it go. And if you do not know, that's why you have to go watch this video because physics is weird, and this is an example of why physics is weird. So go check that out. <laughs> awesome. All right, Josh, what are your picks? Uh, well, I was going to pick Ruby Tapas, right, James? I know. I totally <laughs> forgot. It's so funny. I, I told Josh something Josh about Josh doesn't it think it's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, He's yeah. laughing. Moving <laughs> <laughs> right along. Moving right along. It's okay. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I forgot. And then it wasn't until I was halfway through it. I was like, oh, yeah, I said Josh could do that. Whoops. <laughs> Okay, so I don't have a programming pick this week, but uh, <laughs> let's see. I, I do have a have a, a life hacking pick, and uh, so that uh, I think this passed around on Tumblr uh, last week or so. Uh, there is a Tumblog called uh, Shia LeBeowulf who uh, posted ninety nine life hacks to make your life easier, and it's a bunch of these like. Um, Image macros, you know, you know, meme things, you know, pictures with text on top of them, um, explaining. Well, it's actually I counted ninety-eight things, but it's supposedly ninety-nine things, which are things like you know, using a comb to hold a, a nail when you're hammering, but like blown up into you know pretty much everything you can imagine. Um, that so it's uh, you know, it's pretty clever. A lot of it. Uh, I would say um, that the one life hack for putting your coaster on top of your drink in a bar to reserve your seat and keep them from taking your drink away isn't something that you should do anymore because there's too much that goes on with people getting roofied in bars. So never let your drink out of your sight in a bar. So don't do that. Other than that, the, um, the, the, the hacks all looked pretty, uh, you know, amusing if, you know, if not awesome. So there's that. And then also I saw the movie Looper last night, um, or I'm about to see it last night. I'm not sure, uh, but the, the, uh, it, it was pretty awesome, um, except for the the paradoxes, of course. You know, you, it's it's basically impossible to do a modern time travel story about you know without doing paradoxes because nobody writes time travel stories the right way um, because the only time travel stories you need to read are by Robert A. Heinlein. And he wrote two stories. In 1941, he wrote By His Own Bootstraps. And then in 59, he wrote All You Zombies. Or that's when they were published, uh, I think. But um, those are the stories that you should go read. Um, and after you read them, uh, you'll pretty much be done with time travel stories. Uh, or Actually, there was, there, there was one good time travel movie. Primer. Time Cop. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I saw that one. Primer? Yeah, I didn't see that. Oh, you guys have to see it. Yeah, it's 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 well done and completely baffling. Okay, but well, I, maybe, maybe I'll check that out. But but uh, it's, it's one of those those movies that's very carefully put together, and then people people have like come along after the fact and 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 done elaborate flowcharts to, to try to understand exactly what happened. <laughs> okay. There's actually an XKCD about it that's freaking hilarious. Okay, well, I guess while, while I'm interjecting. <laughs> One of James James Slinky pick reminded me of of I do have a non programming pick and it's a video about hexaflexagons and that's all I'll say. That video was awesome. That needs to be in our picks. Yes. <laughs> all right. That was Violet Blue, right? Was it? Is that who it was? It's who it sounded like to, or not yeah. Violet Blue? Um, what's her name? That Violet Hart. Vi Hart. Yes, Vi Hart. Yes, 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 yes. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to go next. I just have one pick. And that is uh, TweetBot for Mac. It was just released into the Mac App Store. I think it was twenty dollars. I had a few heard a few people complaining about the price, but it does basically everything that I want it to, so I can't complain. So um, you can go check it out and uh, you know buy it if you like it. Just just does a lot a lot of things. You can set up multiple columns or just have one column. You can set it up to check multiple accounts. Just just super awesome. So uh, that's my pick. It saved me a bunch of time, and it's made it easy for me to keep track of what's going on with the shows while we're going and tweet some stuff and things like that. So go check it out, and we'll let Glenn do his picks. Okay. Well, first, I made the comment that Avdi's pick about seven patterns to refactor fat active record models was written by a coworker of mine. Um, I decided to check my work after I made that comment, and I got confused somehow, so it's not, but... No, I wish he was. Um, <laughs> so I have three picks 
the first, so in my talk, uh, one of the things I talked about for ways to learn to, to uh, deal with complex issues was to study what are called wicked problems. And uh, yes. a lot of people hadn't heard of this idea. It's something that comes out of um, sort of policy planning and, and things. And unfortunately, most of what you can go read about wicked problems tends to be fairly old. But recently, a guy named Carl Schroeder, uh, who is a Canadian science fiction writer and, and futurist, wrote three blog posts about wicked problems and um, sort of with a modern take on the things we're facing today that fall into that category. And they're wonderful. And I'll, I'll kind of sneak in another pick here. If you haven't read Carl Schroeder's books, in, in particular his Virga novels, uh, they're well worth it. The second pick I have. Uh, I mentioned when I gave my talk that um, I probably, the idea for this talk probably wouldn't have occurred to me uh, if it weren't an election year um, in the U.S. uh, because um, I have spent a lot of time this year anguishing over both parties oversimplifying complex issues and uh, (laughs) uh, our our terrible media helping them do that. And um, so I'm going to recommend a book by uh, a Princeton philosopher named uh, Harry Frankfurt, uh, and the book is called On Bullshit. <laughs> and um, it's, it's a, an accessible but serious work of uh, philosophy, and uh, the friend who recommended this book to me, Tim Berglund, uh, in the email, he describes it like this. He said, if it does to you what it did to me, you'll never hear a politician in the same way again. The author argues that truth and falsehood are probably not the right categories to use to, evalu- to evaluate political speech and other kinds of speech, and that this is a far worse thing than lying. So it's really terrific. And then finally, you know, one of the best ways of learning to think about complex problems is to read uh, someone who is really good at conveying and describing all that complexity. And the best example I know is uh, Stephen Berlin Johnson. And in particular, uh, three of his books stand out for this purpose. Uh, Emergence, The Ghost Map, where he tells the story of uh, the discovery, the, the origin of the germ theory of disease with the famous cholera epidemic in London and everything, and sort of weaves it into a story about where those beliefs came from and what the new beliefs changed in society and, and just really tying past and future together at that one nexus moment. Uh, and finally, where good ideas come from. Um, are all terrific, and he's just a master at taking super complex issues and describing them very clearly without shying away from the complexity at all. That's it. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Um, Thanks for coming on the show again, Glenn. Um, Real quick, I want to remind everybody that uh, we, today, today being the day this is released, not the day we're recording, is the last day to get your Ruby Newbie sub- submissions in. So uh, if it's still Halloween, you still have until midnight or so. Go do it. In. So go do it. Bonus points for recording your video in costume. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> um, also, the book club, book club book is, and I forget because it's a long name. Pooter. Pooter. <laughs> <laughs> Just go to Amazon and look up Sandy Metz. You'll find it. And then, once again, go sign up for Ruby Parlay on the uh, rubyrogues.com website. Beyond that, we will catch you all next week. What are we talking about next week? Or who do we have next week? Hexagonal Rails with uh, Matt Wynn. Awesome. Very cool. Okay, so there you go. Is that related to the hexaflexagons? (laughs) No, I don't (laughs) think so. You should have saved it a week. Whoever picked that. (laughs) Now I've got to go find oh, well. some adding adding machine tape so that I can build one of those again. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Nice. Okay, that's all, folks. <laughs>